we have to greatly improve access as a country in urban communities, rural communities, for everybody. Did you know that we're experiencing the most disruptive time in healthcare? Guess what? We are. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders and help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA, and this is Moving the Needle. Today on the show, we are joined by none other than Mr. Scott Becker from Becker's Healthcare. Uh, we get into a lot of really good stuff today, including what's happening with COVID-19, how that's impacting healthcare, uh, what the future of healthcare is going to look like, and what does that mean for nurse anesthesiology. Scott Becker is the publisher and founder of Becker's Healthcare and Becker's Hospital Review. He is a partner at McGuire Woods and a former board member at McGuire Woods. Mr. Becker also served as chair of the National Healthcare Practice at this firm for over 12 years. He is a graduate of Harvard Law School and a certified public accountant. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Well, this is uh, something I've been looking forward to for a long time, Scott. I have been uh, following your work for some time. I've had the pleasure of actually being a guest on your podcast a couple of times, and that, that was a, a real treat for me. Uh, and for our listeners, I think most of them are probably familiar with your work, uh, but those of, for those that are not, uh, Scott it has his fingers on the pulse of what's going on in healthcare. Just an incredibly impressive uh, background and perspective. And I'm, I think now more than ever, Scott, I think it's time to have a conversation about what's happening in, health, what's happening in healthcare <laughs> and, and, and where things are going from your perspective. And I, I'm really curious. I actually listened to one of your podcasts this morning, the, the 15 things that you, you see happening. And I'm, I'm really interested in double-clicking on this, this conversation, the dynamics between payers, providers, and facilities. And how the pendulum may have swung because of COVID-19. We're talking about, you know, the, the, I think you used the phrase uh, payers, and we say payers, we're talking about commercial payers, are, uh, have done uh, reasonably well uh, or exceedingly well during COVID-19. And I think you used the phrase minting money this morning. And why is that, Scott, and how is that impacting healthcare delivery and design? Sure. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, appreciate it. Randy, first, it's a pleasure to be on and, and amazing the work that you do at the ANA and, and such a great job in representing a magnificent constituency. So nurse Nessus. So thank you very much for having me. The, um, the, uh, so the payers minting money, the payer thing is a fascinating thing and it's a challenge. And it, unfortunately is, is such a, um, it, it, like all these places where a few make so many money, make so much money, causes distortion in policy that affects all of us. That's how I, I view the world. So you, you have a situation where if you went back, uh, it was the Clinton era where the Clintons were starting to push towards managed care and so forth. And, you know, and, and, and there was some risk that they would take, you know, some money or some control away from the payers. And many of us in healthcare felt that that was a real concern, that that would be disruptive and a real concern at that time. You know, they, they, the American Association of Health Insurance Plans did a wonderful job of advertising marketing. How if you passed it was that time Hillary Kell, whatever it was called, it would be devastating to payers and the, the things would fall apart and the world would fall apart. And you know, and so many of us, so to some extent, bought into that. That you know, it's sort of it's a system that works, and we don't want to disrupt it too much and all that kind of stuff. 
And, it, and it's not so much that it's not a system that works. There's a lot of things about the American health system that work very, very well that we take for granted. And it's a magnificent healthcare system with a lot of challenges. So I view it, and you have to view it in the context of, you know, people underlook the fact that we're providing services to 330 million people, which other than China and India are the two, is the, is the largest set of people in the world to provide services to. So it's a huge mega problem, providing services to 330 million people. In a lot of ways, the American healthcare system for all its challenges works very well for a lot of us. It's imperfect for a lot of us as well. It's not, it's, it is huge inequity problems. It's one of the problems, but largely it, it does a very good job. And the payer environment is part of that to an extent. So in any event, when, when the payers complained, when Hillary Care was coming along, many of us bought into the argument, oh my God, we can't mess this up. It's working okay. And, and what's happened in our world in the last 30 years is no matter what happens, the payers like the house or at the casinos, they take money off the top. And they continue to the phrase that we use is this, whether you like them or hate them, they make a lot of money and they make a lot of money often in a low risk way, because a lot of what they're doing, a lot of the revenues come from administering a lot of stuff versus taking risk on a lot of stuff. And it's not that one is better than the other, but it's a misunderstanding of how payers work when people think, oh, they're making all this money because of risk. Really, they're making a ton of money, not just risk, but administering it. They take a little bit off of everything. It's almost like the house and gambling, a little bit of money off of everything, and it adds up to a real lot. The, um, the, the equation as to how much they make and how much money they make, you know, in, in some ways has become more distorted because the more money they make, the more control they have. Healthcare costs aren't going down. They are fighting with hospitals and health systems that are on the other side of that, and, and providers, of course anesthesiologists, anesthetists, everybody else, they're fighting with everybody. And they, they have a, a decent amount of control over the what you get paid, everybody gets paid. And, and yet there's there's on the other side of that equation, the perception of all of us is the payers are just making a lot of money. And, and whether it's the United, the Blue Crosses, Atlas, and the Cygnus, they've both make a lot of money. It's allowed them to then invest and buy up a lot of the provider universe in different ways too. You know, particularly in the case of CVS Aetna, or united with Optum and so forth. So there's just a lot of different tension there between them on that side and, and providers on the other side. And, and if you're if you're a provider, your perspective is traditionally you've made the ability to make your margins came from commercial payers because you didn't make very much margin on Medicare and Medicaid, although hospitals do okay on Medicare, but on Medicaid not so well. And so you had to do okay on commercial because that was subsidizing everything else. And and now you get into in the traditional perspective of providers says, the payers don't pay us enough, and they're constantly trying to reduce what they pay us. And then the perspective of payers, when we look at providers, is you know they're trying to make themselves indispensable. They're trying to make themselves dominant, where they where they up the charges, they increase charges, and so forth and so on. And the reality is, between the two, you've got a very expensive and difficult dynamic, and a dynamic that's you know increasingly breaking down as well. I mean, at one point, payers felt like, particularly in many markets, they absolutely needed the health system because the health system was so strong in that market. They had, to, they had to deal with that health system because they couldn't afford to have that health system not on their panel. You follow me? They had to, they, they yeah. couldn't be in that spot. Now, health system power has been reduced some in many markets. There's a lot of different things that are going around health systems. And health systems feel like health systems largely got through last year, but they got through last year uh, on the financial side from a lot of the help they got from Washington, D.C. and so forth. And, yeah. and so where health systems are coming out of that, trying to worry about Oh my God! If we're not going to have the Cures Act, the 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 Patient Protection Act, the other the other subsidies, this is going to be really difficult going forward. And the same time last year, the payers cleaned up because they were many where they're not when they're administrated they did fine, and then were capitated they did great because where they're capitated 
You want a spot where all the elective surgeries, one of those has got delayed, put off, one of screens, one of it costs money, got put off. And so payers, Medicare Advantage plans, commercial payers, everybody that's in the payer business that's taking total risk for that part of the portfolio did really well, made a lot of money. And on the other side of that equation, they made a lot of money because they weren't being forced to pay hospitals and physicians and providers and nurse anesthetists for services because the services weren't being performed in a lot of places. If you're an anesthesiologist, nurse anesthetist, and in a surgery center or in a place where you do elective, orthopedics, GI, all kinds of things, incomes were down if you weren't on guarantees mm. because for a period of the year last year, services were, were cut off or slowed down significantly. So on one hand, payers did great, you know, providers did poorly. I mean, it's, it's much what you see with this, you know, one of the great, I, I could, I'll get into it if you'd like, but it's one of the great dichotomies we have in American capitalism at the moment is the people that had capital did great last year, the people don't, did not. And so it, it creates these, these great tensions in our society mm-hmm. and in healthcare. Yeah. Let me turn it back to you. No, that's great. Thank you. That was fascinating, I think, overview. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to zoom in a little bit in an area that I am, I'm, I'm really interested in, and I suspect you're very knowledgeable in this area too. And you can use maybe Optum as a case study, or we can talk about it maybe at a broader level, which is observing the migration of healthcare out of hospitals. And now this was a trend that, that preceded COVID-19, but sure. I think accelerated, uh, has accelerated. And particularly as it relates to, you know, let's say surgical care, which is typically the economic engine of every hospital in this, in this country. And you see folks like Optum acquiring surgical care affiliates. You see other outpatient surgery center companies growing, consolidating, acquiring. And I have to think, Scott, if I was a CEO of a hospital or health system in this United States, in the United States, that would make me very nervous, uh, seeing the growth and seeing the, uh, the out-migration of surgical care, and then urgent care, all of those things seem to be ripe for the picking and seem to be, I think, adversely impacting hospitals and health systems. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's more complicated than that. And, 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 and what I would say is as follows. If you looked at hospital strategy going back two to five years for the vast majority of hospitals and health systems in our, in our country, the vast majority of money was made from, you could, you could name the five of them and make sure I get this quickly and right because I'm just working off no notes, where orthopedics, cardiology, imaging, Spine and spine surgery and oncology. There were, you know, four or five areas generated the huge majority of money for most health systems. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and you know, even large health systems. So large health systems are a little bit different. And and large, large systems that have moved towards capitation and value-based care are a little bit different too, but a huge majority. And and in particular, if you were in a smaller hospital, 100 million, 2 million, 200 million hospital, it wasn't unusual that one small orthopedic group might have controlled 30% of the volume, 30% of the revenues at the hospital. It just wasn't an unusual thing. We're a $100 million hospital, $20, $30 million of the revenues are coming through the orthopedic group, the spine group, et cetera, et cetera. And so the hospital is very dependent upon that group. What's happened is the out-migration of this stuff has happened over a long period of time. So ophthalmology, GI, orthopedics, you know, and so forth, they've been moving out for a long time. Last year might have accelerated, might have added another footnote to it, but surgery center growth, as you know from your membership, has been was very strong for 20 plus years, slowed down the last five to 10 years, picking up a little bit, but but there's there's a new exclamation point on it now where patients for the first time are probably pushing more their hospital, their surgeons to say, are we better off doing this in a surgery center than being in a hospital? I'm scared of being in a hospital right now. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's happened is the big procedures, the hip and knee replacements, the things like that, often done for the 65-year-old plus category, a lot of that slowed down for a period of time because those people, the older people that are doing them, and not 65, it's not old, I'm almost there, but the, but the people that are 75, 80 plus didn't want to do a hip or knee replacement in the last 12 months and get stuck in some kind of rehab facility because of COVID. So you've had mm-hmm. different things that have damaged others. What you've had is 
one of the most interesting things for hospitals. So, so just to come back to your point, just two years ago, strategy revolved around how do we make our hospital the best for cardiology, oncology, orthopedics, spine, and run a ton of images and labs. You know, that world has changed a lot. It was changing a lot. And it's changed even more with the advent of all these different players in this that are trying to be the, the first direct contact for patients. So like when you talk to us on a, a discussion this morning with a, a person who runs part of a major health system, and the perspective that they have today is, we want to be the first person called by that patient for whatever it is. And, and, and you think about today's world, when you arrive an ailment, it is not usually the hospital that's the first person we call. Here's an example. It might be our, our physician, our primary care. It might be we go right over to the local urgent care. Uh, increasingly, we go online to look at something to figure it out. But, it, but it's less and less that your first call is your local health system. It's all kinds of places. And, and what hospitals need to do is gravitate back. Some have done an amazing job of this. I mean, you see many health systems have done. These health systems have grown into multi-billion dollar organizations. The great benefit they have is they're no longer reliant on the four orthopedic guys there or women. They're no longer reliant on that, that service line like they were 10 years ago. It's still important, but it's become a much smaller portion of their entire business. Mm. So they're trying to be sort of mega business where they're far less vulnerable, far less fragile to any one of these little things moving out. Not little. But but one of the service lines moving out, they're multi-billion dollar organizations today. And it's um, you know, they're, they're, you know, you look at companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, United, a couple others. What I typically hear from health system executives is as follows. Apple, not day-to-day of great concern. Apple seems to be sort of playing in the um, you know, in the in the electronic health record space, stuff like that. It might make a big change in it, it might long-term have an impact on where patients flow and go. But hospitals don't seem to wake up in the morning worried about what Apple's doing. They're a very consumer-facing company, but possibly will change the electronic health record, probably causes more concern for Cerner and Epic than it does for health systems. Amazon is you know, concerning when they focus. Amazon makes so much money right now through Amazon Web Services, AWS, that I think you know, whenever Amazon says they're going to get into the pharma business, prescription business, or they're going to get into the actual on-call specialty physician business, which they, or primary care business they've talked about recently, those things cause more traumas for health systems. But Amazon, again, is a giant, giant company. When they decide to focus your industry and truly focus on it, it scares everybody because they're so good at and they're so consumer friendly. They're the sort of they're the model we use if we want to be like Amazon is there's customer utilization. Yeah. Uh, Google, Google at some point can be concerning. But I don't think it's really concerning that much, but but Google's concerning to health system executives only in that if Google gets really good and you do your search and Google sends you someplace other than your local health system, they send you to one of these other, you know, facilitators or, or organizers and specialties, you know, that's concerning. And, and Optum is a, is a, is a, is a complicated being. If, if Optum owns lots of physicians in your market, then you're concerned about it. You know, if they're not really in your market, you're not as concerned about it, but, mm-hmm. but Optum's, you know, Optum is, I mean, tremendous foresight by United in really fostering and forming Optum 10, 15, 20 years ago and what it's grown into. It's now bigger than United itself, which is which yeah. is incredible for people to, to understand. But when you look at all these things, there's different th- threats posed from every one of them. And then there's there's all these other increasingly, you know, Walmart health. And Walmart, depending which health system you are, you know, where is that health system? Because as, as Walmart gets good at doing low-cost care, you know, when you talk to health system executives, the, the message I get more and more is, we want to be the home for the patients. We want to be the place the patient thinks about, you know, and, and the home for the patient in every way, meaning we want to be the first person they call. And so anything that sort of gets in the way of that, 
lessens the control health systems have over the ecosystem. Does that cause them concern? Yeah, that makes sense. And and it's, it, I wonder, it's, it sounds like whether you're a hospital or a health system or, or, or whether you're a commercial that's becoming a healthcare delivery company, the, the goal here is to control as much of the patient life cycle as, as possible. And I have to wonder when you see kind of these asymmetrical threats that typically haven't come, like, you know, the, the level of competition that you've just described, Scott, was probably unthinkable 15 years ago. If we were having conversations about, you know, Walmart uh, and, and Amazon entering in potentially in a really meaningful and disruptive way into healthcare, I think a lot of people just would have rolled their eyes, but, but, but here we are uh, talking about CVS and Walgreens and Walmart and, and Amazon uh, potentially being highly disruptive. And again, I have to go back to our colleagues who are in healthcare, uh, just, you know, the healthcare administrators at the facility and, and at the system level and how they're going to position themselves. Like what is healthcare going to look like 10 years from now uh, with this increasing competition and also with the fact that, oh, by the way, we spend way too much on healthcare. Uh, it's it's 18% of our gross domestic product, close to that, and will likely be over 20% by 2025. How it, how are we going to navigate that unsustainable growth, and how are healthcare leaders going to deal with this this all of this competition? Right. I, I think you could think of three to four different models of health systems that are sort of attacking this in, in, in different ways. I mean, it, and there's overlaps in all of these, but if you look at Kaiser Permanente is one example, which got way out in front, but it was really built for a different purpose, but got way out in front in being in a fully integrated insurance and providing care. And so it's it's totally integrated between insurance and, and healthcare. And so it's a different, it's a different model. It's a, it's direct employers, direct to patients as a totally capitated system, at least largely. So they, you know, it's an it was built originally, fascinatingly enough almost like Amazon, JP, Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway tried to think about with Haven Healthcare. It, it was built originally to serve, you know, the steel plants of Kaiser a hundred years ago and became, you know, people don't even remember that anymore to be sort of because they were felt like they were not able to control their healthcare costs or provide their employees with services they wanted to at the right price. But ultimately it's built into one health model. Then you look at Intermountain led by Mark Harrison of Utah region, the greater area and so forth. And, and Intermountain, which used to be a collection of a lot of different hospitals, has really grown into 50 plus percent value-based care and, and a real agent for change. They started Civica, the generic RX company. They're doing really interesting things in a different model. But the model is when you talk about the orthopedics and the stuff moving outside of hospitals and so forth, it's somewhat in response to that. It's not really a response to that, but it's, it's a whole different game. They're trying to be value-based, the value-based model, the place of, of sort of, 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 of the choice of place to be for all healthcare in that whole greater region that they're in. And so it's, it's sort of, that's their model. And what happens is if you could, if you can move towards that model, you, know, you become less and less dependent upon these four to five specialties that traditionally that, that might go out patient, might not go out patient, but have driven a lot of your, you've driven a lot of your revenues 10, 15 years ago, or, or not that many years ago. Then there's places like Atrium Health led by Gene Woods, who has grown again to be very strong regional health system growing significantly with a sort of big social conscious to them as well, trying to be sort of almost a public institution, but also profitable and trying to make sure that they are sort of the, the choice of like, we're doing great things for the community. We've got great care, but we, we take our social conscious or social justice perspective very, very seriously. And we, and we mix it with providing great, great care and trying to do so in a profitable way, but trying to be a complete community leader in the communities that they're in. It's a fascinating different perspectives. And then of course, you still have the Mayos, the Cleveland Clinics, 
the New York Presbyterians or, or, or even the Partners Healthcare sort of mass general trying to be the most elite health system. So that where you have a, a serious problem, this is where you're going. You know, and there's, and there's some of those in every place, like the elite academic medical centers and, and trying to make sure there's still that, that like you, you, you have something serious, you got a serious problem. We still want you to come and look at us as the place to go to and, and try to mix that with community-based models too. So you have these different models evolving. And, and, and that the, the formula is that you know, the, the thing they have in common is they're, they're far less dependent upon specific surgical services moving outside because they're trying to really control it in a bigger way and, and be much more important to the entire community. Um, and, and, and they're, you know, they're trying to be so important to the regions that people think of them first. Like if you're in Utah, you probably do think of Intermountain first for healthcare. You know, if you're in Charlotte, it's a little bit different. It's probably a mix of Atrium, Novant, your local physician, your local urgent care, all kinds of different things. If you're in California, if you're in a Kaiser community, you probably do think of Kaiser. And Kaiser, to its credit, if you looked at Kaiser 20 years ago, you know, people thought of it as a very secondary type of healthcare delivery system. Now it's sort of as good as any place, you know, in, 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 in you know, a, a really good health system in terms of quality care. Well, what about, Scott? So, yeah, so the, I, hear, I hear you loud and clear that these large health systems uh, are positioned probably quite well uh, because they've been able to strategically position themselves well. But what about these smaller health systems, these, you know, this, uh, or the community hospitals or even the critical access hospitals in, these country, in this country? I have to wonder, you know, if, they're, if they're, their long-term success from a financial perspective is in question if they cannot be, if they cannot be acquired uh, or if they cannot position themselves uh, with the market leverage that a Kaiser would have or that a, um, you know, Intermountain would have. How, what, what's, your, what's your predictions for these smaller health systems? Yeah, I mean, hospitals. some of them are, what happens is, it, it's, one, it's very hard to be an independent hospital anymore, just because the risks you have to take, the costs you have to take, the money you have to take to invest, it just, it's hard to be an independent hospital. There's studies on that that long ago, that showed the biggest, you know, risk of failure is being an independent hospital. So it's not that it's not doable, and some of them do it very, very well, and have created moats on themselves and, and have a reason why they have a moat. What happens for most of these hospitals is, if you're a small hospital, you might very well be able to succeed for a long time as a small hospital but you have to be very careful and clear about what you're doing and what your mission is. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, you, you see small hospitals, there are a lot of critical has, access hospitals that are actually doing okay, you know, doing better than expected this last year and the last couple of years. But the, the, the trick is they know what they're good at. They know what they're trying to do. You know, they're not yeah. trying to do all things. If you're trying to build a great open heart program at a very small critical access hospital, you probably missed the boat on many different levels, you know, mm-hmm. but because because the, the way the heart care, cardiology, and you know, it's, there's no longer the open heart surgery like there was, there's stents, all kinds of other things. But it's just that, but it's more so the point is that you can't be trying to do everything. Like when I when I go into a very small hospital, and the board members won't take their own families there, I know that that small hospital has to go. That they're you know they have to line, they have to find some way to be to be out. But there are a lot of small hospitals doing magnificent work, but they have to know their mission. They have to be very clear about it. Yeah. What's your prediction? It, we've been talking for some time about shifting healthcare from a, an addiction to volume to really being focused on value-based care, because that, that, that's at least a lot of people think that's how we're going to be able to bend that cost curve. How do you see that moving forward? Do you see, you know, as COVID, whenever this thing is, do you see a, an acceleration in that movement towards value-based care? I mean, Yes, and but it's very complicated because everybody's definition of value-based care is a little bit different. And, and and at some point, you know, people still have to get paid for the services that they do. 
And you, you, you know, you, you have a situation now where like under COVID people would say, well, value-based care did great, you know, did great. And, and I say that in quotes, but it really didn't do great. It did great because a ton of services weren't delivered. Mm-hmm. That, that's everybody's greatest fear about an HMO or capitated care or value-based care is you're going to take the dollars of the premium dollars, you know, five to $20,000 a year, and you're going to make it hard to get care. So, so the issue is, how do you mesh these different things and how do you deal with it, you know, in a, um, in a country with, you know, 330 million people? You know, it's, it, at the end of the day, you and I may disagree or agree. My own perspective is we've got to make it a little bit easier to become a doctor, a little bit easier to become a nurse. We just, we just need or we got to make it a little bit easier to have immigrants come as nurses and doctors. You know, we're just, we're just running into on the specialist side, the primary care side in a lot of places, different kinds of, um, you know, shortages and challenges that may not be so acute in a certain, especially right this moment, but over a 10-year period are likely to be very acute. And so you've got, and, and they may not be so acute in New York, Los Angeles, or Chicago, but they're very acute in smaller neighborhoods and in, in smaller communities. You know, so you've got this, you know, and, and, and you've got these, and you've got challenges in that you can get into medical school today, but it's hard to get a residency spot. There's not enough funding for graduate medical programs, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of challenges on the supply side of healthcare that are also causing distortions too. Yeah. Oh yeah. And we've talked in the past about concerns that many people have about workforce supply demand and it's, uh, and COVID has not, uh, not, not helped that <laughs> clearly. Before we wrap up, Scott, I, I'm curious, is there something that you've changed your mind about in the last year or so? Where you you maybe have thought one thing, regardless of what that topic would be. And then- I, I would think I, it's it's a, it's a it's a great great question. There's so many things that, of course, we're all evolving thinkers. We hope, but it's like if it if it um, I, I would say a few things. And so bear with me. I apologize, but mm-hmm. like um, you know, universal coverage. Somehow or another, we got to get to universal coverage, where everybody's covered somehow or another. I mean, and we're, mm-hmm. we're we're down to about thirty million people out of three thirty that don't have coverage, nine percent or so. But somehow or another, they have to get to universal coverage. Universal coverage does not mean nationalized healthcare. It does not mean single payer. It does not mean not choice. It means everybody has coverage somehow or another. And, it, and that's very different than and, – and what happens is universal coverage is very easy for the politicians to talk about. You know, in, in Medicare for all doesn't strike me as the answer because Medicare is only 14% of our population. So it's like if you say, oh, it's going to be Medicare for all tomorrow, even Joe Biden understands, that's not the right answer. It's somewhere – it's some incremental answer, which I don't disagree with them on. But, it's, but what happens is once you get coverage for all, I'm going to start addressing the harder problem, which is access for all. So even though if you have coverage, coverage without access is only one part of the equation. You need access. And there's still a ton of places where you don't have access. You're not going to have access to everybody. You're not going to have access to the best brain surgeon in the world in a small community, but you're going to at least have access to as much as you can so you can get to the right, the, the right brain surgeon at the right place. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to have every service in every place. But we have to greatly improve access as a country in urban communities, rural communities, for everybody. I mean, you and I know that, you know, you could be the most, if you want to get to see a certain kind of specialist, you have to have a connection. You have to, you have to work the phones. You have to figure out who's going to get you that specialist, stuff like that. And it's a problem. It's, 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 a, it's a huge problem in our country. So coverage, I've come to the conclusion we've got to have universal coverage of a source, but even universal coverage without access is a real problem. I, I have a number of other just things that have you know, surprised me. I mean, the resilience of our healthcare leadership and healthcare workforce has been remarkable. I do worry about it as we keep on going through more surges and stuff like that. I just saw in Michigan today, they're stopping elective surgeries because they're having an upsurge, uptick yeah. in COVID there. I mean, very concerning. The resilience of our healthcare workforce, healthcare leadership, the amount of burnout and trauma, 
the resilience of the virus. The resilience of the virus is very scary. I mean, we, we all realize probably more than ever, we don't live in a vacuum. When we first saw this happening in China last year in February, January, something like that, those of us that are short-sighted than myself said, oh my God, that's a horrible problem in China. <laughs> but that's a horrible problem for them. This is going to be a horrible problem for our supply chain. But we didn't realize as much as we should. We're a global world. So if we, if we like when people say we've got to vaccinate Americans, absolutely have to vaccinate Americans, and then we have to vaccinate the rest of the world. We've got to vaccinate everybody, 8 billion yeah. people, as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, as often as possible, because it, this, we're just so interconnected as a world. I mean, yeah. it, the resilience of the virus, the resilience of our workforce, the burnout, the need for access, better access, which means better supply of physicians and nurses and nurse anesthetists, everybody else. It, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, a lot of a lot of big problems, but but I do think the interconnected rest of the world it is a is a scary thing, and, and it's not changing. That's not going backwards. It's just as we everybody's. It's like when we think about. You know, I get vaccinated Americans first. I get that. I'm on board with that. It is what it is. But we got to work very quickly to how do we turn that to vaccine everybody in the whole world and do it constantly. So we are a very interconnected world, whether they like it or not. Yeah, yeah, that's like a great. It, but but we yeah. are a very interconnected world. Yeah, for and sure. I'm a fan. And, I, I, I mean, just, just to finish up on that point, I mean, our healthcare workforce without our immigrant population would be a freaking disaster. I mean, mm-hmm. thank God that we've got this in our country. Thank God we have immigrants of what's built our country. And it's not that I'm open borders. I'm not. But we I am pro-immigrant to the nth degree. And it's what's built our healthcare workforce. And it's building the gaps in it. It's one of our greatest positions. We, we just need and we have to understand we are in an interconnected world with COVID, with immigration, with workforce, with everything. We have to foster that relationship. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. I really enjoyed our conversation. I know our listeners will as well. Randy, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to visit with you. All right. Take care, my friend. Thanks so much, Scott. That was fascinating. And thank you to everyone for listening today. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and colleagues to tune in to Moving the Needle. Until next time, take care of yourself.